Welcome to Beyond the Defense, everyone. This is Heidi, and I am so glad you're joining our podcast today. A special thanks to our return listeners and a warm welcome to our first-time listeners. I'm joined today by Dr. Nancy Stolowski, who recently completed her doctoral research entitled Philanthropic Funding and State Appropriations at Public Higher Education Institutions. Dr. Stolowski earned her Doctor of Education from the George Washington University, where she graduated in 2021. And I'm so excited to engage her in conversation about her research today. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on here, Heidi. Start by introducing yourself to our listeners, just a little bit about your experience and your educational journey. Absolutely. Um, Hello, everyone. Um, My name is Nancy, and I am currently the executive director for a nonprofit that focuses on preparing college women for public policy positions called uh, the Public Leadership Education Network. As Heidi mentioned, I got my doctorate degree from the uh, George Washington University uh, this past January. And before that, I actually received my master's and my undergraduate degrees um, from the University of Maryland. And the, the doctorate in education really was kind of a transition for me. So my original plan was to go into to public uh, policy and politics. Um, but when I was a master's student, I, my graduate assistantship was advising students and I fell in love. I've always liked school and then I fell in love. So I decided to make a career out of it. So I've been in higher education for over a decade. And at some point I was like, well, I've always wanted to get my doctorate degree. Let me go back and and work on that. So that is how I ended up getting my degree. That's so interesting. I, I, I think all of our journeys are a little bit different. How long did it take you to finish your doctoral study? You did it while you were working, right? Yes. So the program I was in at uh, GW was um, for practitioner scholars. So we worked full time Well, I worked full time and we took our courses um, on the weekends and it was a cohort based system. We took courses year round. So in order to make sure that we were able to fully take our courses, we had to do year round courses. So it took me three and a half years, four years to finish. So just right on time there. Amazing that you did it so quickly while while working full time. Any particular things that stand out to you as a full time worker, full time student as you're going through that journey? What stands out to you that might be helpful for others that are considering this transition, this step? Absolutely. I mean, definitely for three and a half, four years, I, I didn't have really have any free time. So I think it's super important that you have the support of your family, whoever you normally engage with on a daily basis, because you will be taking away a lot of time from what you normally do with them. If you're also going to be working full time, I think it's super important that you get the support of your supervisor. So my supervisor was very excited that I was working on my doctorate degree and very supportive. And that really allowed me to then both work and work on my doctorate degree at the same time without, you know, feeling like it was too overwhelming. Oh, I had not considered that that supervisory support. That makes a that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and part of your doctoral journey is a dissertation. Was that something you were looking forward to? Did you have ideas of what you might do with um, your study? 
Yes. So it's, I think it's a funny story, um, but I did a master's thesis when I got my master's because I had always wanted to get my doctorate degree. And it was, it was very hard, <laughs> very, very hard. It, you know, it was a 200 page master's thesis. And I was like, I can't do this again, which is one of the reasons why I didn't go straight into a doctorate degree. So I knew that when I was looking at, you know, getting a doctorate degree that I was ready to do that again. And I felt a little more confident when I was applying to graduate schools, because I was like, I've already done this before, right? This is something I've kind of done. I know I can do this. So I was excited about it. The other aspect for me was um, because I was looking at a, you know, a variety of schools, but looking at schools that both offer PhDs as well as a doctorate in education, I knew that I wanted to do a doctorate in education that required a thesis that had that same experience that you would get when you're working on, you know, a traditional PhD. So yeah, so I was very excited. I had a few different ideas of kind of you know, what I might want to do my doctorate degree in. So when I submitted my applications, you know, you had to submit your personal statement with kind of a topic that you might be interested in. And at the time that I had applied, I was working for a donor funded scholarship program at the University of Maryland. And that really piqued my interest in, you know, how, how does this money that comes from these private sources kind of interact with these very public schools and kind of the mission of what they're doing? So that's kind of how I got into my broader topic. And one of the great things about the program that I was in at GW was that because it is for scholar practitioners from the very first day, the very first class you take, one of the courses is essentially like a workshopping course where from the very first semester, you start workshopping your topic and your idea so that you're prepared for something, you know, once, once you have passed your comps. Well, and and where I and when where Melissa and I went to school, went to school uh, at Old Dominion, that we had that same setup. That and and I think to graduate in three years, it's almost the only way you can do it to to finish your dissertation if you start thinking about what it is going to be from day one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you shared with us your topic about higher education and finance, and it struck me that right off the bat in your chapter one, you talk about higher education, public versus private good. Yes. Um, (laughs) Share a little bit about what you learned from reading the literature or just your own um, experiences as a practitioner, higher education as a public or a private good. Where, where, Where are we with that? I mean, it really depends on who you're asking, unfortunately. But I did notice from doing the literature review that a lot of the actual like literature out there on the topic is very much still focused on higher education as a public good, right? And why is higher education a public good? What is it still providing? You know, why is it important? It stays a a public good. But then when you consume some of more of, you know, I would say like the media topics, you know, the op-eds, you know, things that are published in the newspaper, when you read some of those, you definitely lean a little bit more towards, oh, but higher education really is more of a private good now, right? It's, you know, it's about getting a job. It's about preparing students to go out and make the money. So that was a really interesting dichotomy for me as I was kind of researching that and figuring out which of those sources to kind of include in the dissertation, right? Traditionally, in a literature review, you're looking at peer-reviewed sources and, you know, in journals, and that's what you want to include. But because of my topic, I definitely included 
some well-written, you know, more media type pieces to show the other side of kind of, well, why is this something that we are still talking about? And I think that, you know, the idea of public versus private good is just something that in recent years, and I say recent in like the last 10 years has just you know, exploded in the higher education, you know, sphere and in topic wise, as again, we get into these funding issues of should we be giving more money to, you know, higher education? Should we, you know, right now, the big question, of course, is student loans, right? How do we handle student loans? I mean, they all kind of all those questions kind of tie back into what I think is the central question of, you know, legislatures and the public and higher education administrators really wrestling with, well, is higher education a private or public good? And I think that's why we have a lot of these different questions that come about. I think that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing, in in addition to student loans, and I must say, I'm grateful for the moratorium. Uh, As someone who recently graduated, I'm not going to argue with that. But, you know, we're also talking about free community college and and the kind of financial, you know, economical aspects of that. And of course, it all intersects with the pandemic. So there's just there's just a lot to sort of unpack with higher education finance in general. Your particular study was focused on the years 2004 to 2018. That was the data that you collected. Give us a little bit of a backdrop. What are what are we looking at in that time frame in terms of context politically, economically? Like what kind of impacted or shaped the data that you found? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, the big data point in there, of course, is the Great Recession of 2008, when a lot of states reduced the amount of state appropriations that, you know, institutions received. So that was really the, the big kind of economic aspect that I looked at. I really kind of, you know, looked at it from an economic perspective, just because, I was doing a quantitative study and I was looking at the relationship between two kind of funding sources. And so, you know, you're looking at 2004 to, so I divided up my years into pre-recession, recession, and then, you know, after recession to kind of, you know, have a comparison. Um, but even that's kind of a, a misnomer. So, you know, there was a 2001 recession. So, you know, by 2004, some could argue well, you know, were we over the effects of the 2001 recession? And it was like, well, I said yes for, for my dissertation. You know, we have to make decisions as we move forward. But the hard part really was picking a date for when I would say the recession was over, right? As I'm doing my analysis, because you have to pick a hard date for that. So that was kind of, you know, a major decision I had to make when I was working on my data. Um, and I ended up picking a year based on political factors. So I picked the year that, you know, President Obama had said, okay, so, you know, we're no longer having these issues, you know, I've removed the extra support that we're, you know, that it's going towards, you know, school. So that's the year I picked. But then as I was looking at my data, it was really interesting, because it was different, you know, when you start to see that uptick again was different based on the type of institution it was. So so it is really interesting to see that even though there might be a blanket date where someone says, okay, we're over the recession, that for different schools, that might not necessarily be, be true. So your topic is uh, regarding the intersection of philanthropy or philanthropic funding and state appropriations. Higher education finance is such a broad topic. How did you narrow it down to this particular lane of inquiry? It definitely changed a lot before I got to this. When I originally applied, I knew I wanted to 
write my dissertation and learn a little bit more about philanthropy because I was working for that donor funded program. And originally I was intending to look at it more as from like a governance aspect of how does that impact the governance of higher education institutions. And I did a lot of research on that. But then my second semester, I took a finance course with an absolutely fabulous professor And it just clicked for me. And I was like, oh, you know what? This makes sense. I want to study philanthropy. And while, yes, governance is very exciting and still a topic I'm interested in, I was like, this would be a really cool dissertation to do, to talk about it in relation to state appropriations. And part of that, you know, part of how I narrowed down the topic, and this might be a little backwards also, is that I knew I wanted to do a quantitative study. So, you know, the majority of the people in my program all do qualitative studies, but I had done a qualitative, essentially a qualitative study for my master's. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go into academia after this. So this might be my one chance to do like a real quantitative needy study. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so when the idea of seeing if state appropriations and philanthropic funding were associated in any way came about it made sense to me. I was like, this is great. And then, you know, it, I had lots of ideas from there and it narrowed down to kind of the parameters I ended up choosing for my dissertation really based on the data that was available. So there's not a lot of data out there on philanthropic donations for institutions. So once I knew that I kind of wanted to talk about these two you know, these two funding sources in relation to each other, then I started looking at, well, where can I get data for it? State appropriations data, very easy. There's quite a few different places you can get that, but there really wasn't for philanthropic data. So then I got access to the data that I wanted to use and then really narrowed down the parameters of kind of what my study would be based on um, what data was available to me. And you're one of the, you know, you you mentioned that in your program, a lot of the students were doing qual studies. And we found that to be the case with this podcast as well. I mean, you're one of the few that that it did quant uh, did a quant study. I, I noticed in your application to be on the podcast that that your method kind of changed during your proposal and then after and when you were actually engaging in the study piece of it. Tell us a little bit about what happened there and and what you set out to do and then what you ended up actually doing in terms of your methodology. Yeah, absolutely. So for my proposal, I had my methodology as a multiple regression. Um, So just kind of looking at the data, you know, using lots of multiple regressions to, to kind of compare the years. And, you know, I passed the proposal and, you know, the, my, they were happy with it, but my methodologist did pull me aside and was like, you know, if you really want to do a truly rigorous study that, you know, you're going to be able to publish one day, I highly suggest that you look at a method that really focuses a little bit more on some of the, the issues that come about with doing longitudinal studies, um, since this would be a longitudinal study. So absolutely, I took his advice to heart and I I did some more research and I ended up taking an additional like three-day crash course on doing a multi-level modeling and essentially rewrote my chapter three for the proposal and resubmitted it. And yeah, so my methodologist as well as my other committee members were very happy with that. So then I moved forward with that. 
And it did push back my timeline by probably a month and a half as I was really kind of diving in and learning how to do this new methodology. But I do think that the end product is is much stronger because I took his advice and, and definitely went with the new new method. Well, I, I feel like anytime your committee members, this was the same for me. One of my committee members suggested that I include um, additional participants. I did a qualitative study, mm-hmm. additional participants with diverse backgrounds. And I thought, okay, well, that will add, like you said, another month to you know my study. But I am so glad that I did and because I have data now that I can do different things with and that make me more publishable and, and you know, get the work out there. And that is, that's always a good thing. What would you say in, in this process of going from multiple regression to multi-level modeling, what were some of the challenges and successes you had with your method as you were going through this process? I think that well, some of the success, I'll start with the successes. The Some of the successes were that I was able to learn it and complete it, which is always great. I was able to reach out to the professor who taught like the crash course. It was a three-day course um, and really get his input on and, and his advice on kind of how to adapt that to, you know, what I had already proposed, which was, which was very helpful. I think that, you know, just perseverance is also kind of the success, right? At that point, you're, you're so ready to get started on writing, right? You've spent so long on your literature review and you're like, okay, I'm ready to actually do something, you know, exciting, something fun, but just understanding that you kind of have to put that on hold and you're going to do a little bit more reading now and kind of learn this is very helpful. The hardest part for me with switching the the methods was learning the programming for it. So I knew how to do regression in both Stata and in SPSS. So I was very comfortable with, you know, the command lines and everything I would need to do for that. But because multi-level modeling is a much more robust and more complicated system, it required a lot more learning on my part. So I actually ended up switching programs multiple times because of that. So I started learning multi-level modeling, the programming for it on in R because there were so many free resources out there for me to do. And it was great. It was smooth sailing for like three weeks. But then I ran into some, you know, some quirks or intricacies of my data and I couldn't figure out how to get that to then work using my data. So then after I had spent three weeks learning how to do it in R, I actually then switched to SAS and had to relearn how to do everything in SAS. So, so that was probably the most difficult part is, you know, once I understood the method, that was great. But then how do you actually, you know, make that method? How do you get the results from what you need from that? So, so that was probably one of the more difficult parts. I would highly recommend to, to any student that if you are doing a quantitative study and you are going to be, you know, using one of these statistical programs uh, pieces that you go with one of your methodologist prefers. <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing with SAS is what my methodologist preferred. So once I relearned everything, I was then able to kind of send him the few different, you know, points where it wasn't working. And then he was able to workshop it with me and we figured out kind of how to make it work with the data. So that was very helpful. Well, I think it's always helpful that you use the same, you're able to use the same program that your methodologist or anyone on your committee really prefers in case they want to help with the raw data. So that's actually really good advice. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. Mm -hmm. You are using data that's publicly available for your study. Tell our listeners about the multiple data sources that you worked with. What, where did you get your numbers? 
for the state appropriations data and some institutional data, I used iPad, which most people are very familiar with. I also used um, the Barron Selectivity for Barron Selectivity, and I used the, the College Board for flagship status because just because for some odd reason, um, it was the most complete of all the sources for flagship status, which I thought was interesting. And then for the data on uh, philanthropic funding, I used a source called the VSC, the Voluntary Survey of Education, which is a survey that institutions can participate. Obviously, it's voluntary, so they don't always participate. And basically, it's it's a giant survey they collect on philanthropic data. Um, so institutions, you know, put in how much they're getting, who they're getting it from, you know, where is it going towards, and just a variety of data. That actually is not publicly available data, but I was able to access it through my institution because institutions subscribe to the data. If your institution subscribes, then anyone affiliated with the institution can use it if that's the subscription they chose, which thankfully was the case for me. Yeah, so that was actually kind of a fun part for me. I really enjoyed putting it all into one massive Excel sheet. I'm a big Excel fan. <laughs> so, so that was a lot of fun. So then what I did was... Again, because the VSE was the most limited of the data sources, um, what I had to do was kind of narrow down my sample based on the available data. So the sample was narrowed down to you know, public institutions that had filled out the VSE between those years that I was studying, 2004 through 2018. And then any institution that you know, didn't fill out the data that I needed for those years, I did not include. So, so I first did, you know, I you know, first removed student, uh, institutions that weren't public institutions, which were the majority of them, I will say. A public, private institutions are more likely to fill out the VSC than public institutions, which is not surprising because private institutions usually bring in more philanthropic funding than public institutions. So I narrowed it down to only four-year institutions. And then only institutions then then filled out uh, the various variables I had. So I, uh, some of my variables included total philanthropic funding for the year. And then I had it divided up into restricted philanthropic funding for a year. I wanted to compare the difference between restricted and non-restricted funding and funding by various sources. So I had alumni, I had parents, corporations, foundations, and then the VSC has this group they call other for higher ed, that's just a group of other donors. So, so those were the variables that I looked for to make sure that we had the, the, the information on. So that led to 383 institutions being included in my sample. And I thought it was so interesting in your limitations, you mentioned who those 383 were in sort of broad strokes, like, right, like, what makes it likely that you are one of those 383 that end up in being in this list that filled out the survey and also is public? What can you share with our listener about the sort of characteristics of those institutions? Yeah, I mean, the big thing, the big, you know, ask there is, are they bringing in money? right? It's usually the institutions that are bringing in more philanthropic funding than other institutions. It's more likely to be research universities, doctoral research universities than, um, you know, baccalaureate institutions. So when I was comparing between, you know, institution size, that was actually very difficult for me because so much of the sample was, you know, doctoral institutions. But interestingly, the other aspect that I found, which surprised me was that it also was based on kind of like what state system you were in. So there were certain states that filled out the VSE every year. 
you know, all their institutions filled it out every year. So, you know, California, Texas, New York, you know, all of those public institutions filled it out every year. And then, you know, sometimes you got like one school from another state. So you don't really have something to come to compare that with. So, so that was an interesting limitation that I found was, oh, okay, like, So it really depends, you know, but that also made me kind of think about like, how are the systems within each state kind of making it more accessible or less accessible for institutions to then receive, you know, private funding, you know, if they're encouraging or requiring all of their institutions to fill this survey out, then, you know, I'm wondering in my head, are they more accommodating or have, you know, less rules or just more processes set up for these institutions to then get private funding than other schools. That's interesting. Speaking of characteristics, how would you describe your process of analysis to someone who's not familiar with multi-level modeling? Is there sort of a, a layman's way to explain what you did to analyze your data? Absolutely. I mean, Ultimately, I don't think it's that different from a regression analysis. It really isn't. So if you understand a multiple regression, then I think you really kind of understand the basics of a multi-level linear model because it's still a linear model, right? You know, you're still looking at it over time. The the difference is that, you know, you're looking at it at two levels, or at least for my study, you're looking at it at two levels. You can look at it at multiple levels. So when I say two levels, you first run everything to just look at the growth curve. So do just look at the change of your dependent variable. How has your dependent variable changed over the years? So you look at just that. And then at the second level, then you add in various factors then that might change that relationship between your dependent and independent variable. So like when you run a multiple regression, you're kind of putting it all in there at once, right? And you're seeing what comes out and then you have your... Um, you have your coefficients and you're like, okay, this is statistically significant or not. And you kind of examine it all at once. But with the multi-level model, you kind of examine just the, you know, primary dependent, primary independent together. And then you add in what you would normally think of as like your covariance when you're doing a multiple regression. So for my study, the first level was just the relationship between state appropriations and philanthropic funding over the 14 years. And then the second part was how do institutional characteristics kind of change that relationship? So the second level was when I added in Carnegie classification, flagship status, barren selectivity. So that's kind of the meat of it. There's a lot of things kind of in the back. If you're, if you're really trying to get into it that you do have to learn, you know, how do you each year is kind of related to each other and how do you, you know, account for that? And that kind of is all you have to learn all of that. But the basics of a multi-level model is really really that point where it's very similar to a regression, except that you have your, your different areas. The other way to look at it, it's, it's actually used very often in K through 12 research. You can look at it as they look at it as one level being the school system or the county system if it's set up by county. And then the second level being the school itself. And then the third level being like the classroom. And then at the fourth level, you finally get to the student, right? So you, so that you can actually compare a variety of, of groupings when the groupings are kind of within each other and nested within each other. And that's how it's most often used in, in education research. That actually made a lot of sense. So thank you for explaining that for those of us who are not quant people. Let's get to the good stuff, right? Let's get to your findings. 
you had four research questions, mm-hmm. which is a lot to explore with the amount of data that you had. Share with us some sort of your broad level findings. Like what did your analysis find? So at the very basic level, I did find that there was a statistical relationship between state appropriations and philanthropic funding. And to me, that finding is very important in, you know, if you are arguing for the idea that higher education is a public good, right? Because if those two sources have some kind of relationship or are associated with each other, then it's important that when you're making policy on higher education finance, that you're considering both aspects. So, so for me, you know, that, that was an important finding. It, you know, this was also backed by previous research, you know, done on this topic. So always a good start when you're very basic finding is like, yes, okay, so we're, we're working there. The other finding, which again, is not very surprising is really is that there's a, a discrepancy or a big disparity in philanthropic funding received by various institutions based on institutional characteristics. So my study found that, you know, doctoral competitive flagship institutions are much more likely to bring in both philanthropic funding and state appropriations than institutions that don't fit that category, which again is something that, you know, we all kind of know as, as we're, you know, aware of kind of the higher education landscape, but again, having the data there to kind of back that up. When we get to my growth curve, the really interesting thing is that for all of my growth curves, so total philanthropic, um, restricted, and then the donations by various donors, all of them showed a U-shaped growth curve. So in 2004, it started going down, I mean, kind of, it kind of went a little bit, you know, sideways and then started going down, you know, around the 2008 crash. And then it started going back up. And that was pretty much standard for all of them with the exception of philanthropic funding from foundations. Philanthropic funding from foundations stayed linear the entire time period. And I thought that was very interesting because it shows that, you know, foundation funding is then less likely to be impacted by economic factors. And so, you know, I did some more research on that. And again, it kind of makes sense when, when you've, you know, think about it and have done the research because most foundations give out grants that are multi-year grants now, right? They don't usually do like a one-year grant. So if they've already decided to give an institution money, then, and it's, you know, a five-year grant, even if, you know, the economy dips, they kind of already have that money in the reserve and ready to go. So so that kind of made sense. But the the U-shape was, you know, something I was hoping to see. It made sense to me when you just think about it. You're like, yeah, the 2008 Great Recession, you would expect to see a U-shape. And I definitely did see that U-shape. So, so that was interesting. Unlike the 2014 date that I used personally to divide between recession and, and post-recession, in the data, though, the uptick started happening in 2010. So for philanthropic funding, donations started to go back up in 2010. So that was, you know, that was really interesting for me. And then again, my study wasn't a causal study. You know, I'm not looking at did the Great Recession, you know, do this or that or anything. I just happened to be aware that that is, you know, within the data I have. But it was interesting that in the earlier time periods, as state appropriations increased, philanthropic funding also increased for doctoral and non-flagship institutions. But then that switched starting in 2011. So as state appropriations increased, these same institutions started to receive less philanthropic money. 
now I'm interested, you know, why, why is that, you know, has this great recession changed donor behavior? That is not a question I can answer with my dissertation, but it does give me some ideas of maybe what I would like to do for some, some future research. So yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, little things in obviously four questions. There are a lot of results, but that basically is like the big results. You know, I really talk when I'm, you know, speaking about policy of how we can look at kind of the data. Another interesting result personally for me is that through the data, I found that parents and alumni are more likely to donate to institutions when state appropriations is going down. So, and that is kind of backed up. There's not a lot of research out there on it right now, but it is backed up by some other research studies that alumni and parents are really more likely to donate when they feel like that appeal. So if it's, you know, their undergraduate institution or the institution their child went to and they're facing a hardship and they get that appeal, you know, saying, you know, we could really use your help, that they are more likely to give as opposed to some other donor sources. So that was really a, oh, sorry, one more, one more. Um, There was a 96% correlation between total philanthropic funding and restricted funding, which I think is also very important to talk about. That is not unknown. That is, you know, data that has been put out there before and, and is very well known. But I think it's very important when you talk about that, because if institutions are trying to bring in more private funding, And that private funding is more likely, 96% likely to be restricted, that you can only use it to what the donor would like them to use it to. Then you're having, again, this kind of ties into the governance piece I was talking about before about, well, then if that's the kind of money that you're bringing in, then how does that impact institutions on what they're trying to do, right? Because most of state appropriations goes towards operating funding, right? Operating expenses. So if the operating expenses, the money they're getting for that is going down, even if they're bringing in more money, if that money is cannot be used towards operating expenses, what does that then mean for the institution? Yeah. Donors don't want to pay to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've worked at, at both public and private, and and I think you know the idea that development professionals are you know encouraged or required to bring in a certain amount of unrestricted, and yet all of your donors, is particularly I would say parents and and alumni, you know they want to give to a good cause, and and the light bill is typically not the cause they had in mind. So, right. just out of curiosity, do you remember? Um, for these institutions, so these are your R1, your your larger, your flagship institutions, what percent was unrestricted? Do you have a sense? I will say that because these are public institutions, one of the things to keep in mind is that the amount of philanthropic funding compared to like their total budget is still a very small number, right? We're looking at for public institutions, private funding is really anywhere from like three to 10% of the budget right now. Whereas for private institutions, you know, you're looking at anywhere from like 50 to right 80%, right? It's kind of hard to say right now, of like how much of that percentage is then restricted. But I would say that the majority of that, because the correlation was 96%, the majority of that probably is restricted, doesn't impact public higher education institutions quite as much, but it's something to think about as public institutions, especially those flagship institutions are doing you know, major campaigns and bringing in a lot more private funding every year. 
That actually, that puts it in perspective. I mean, I had mm-hmm. no idea it was that little, but still, uh, it's still, I, I guess, significant for whatever it does, uh, you know, financially support at those institutions. Do your magic predictions here. What are you thinking? What impact? Because you cut off your data at 2018 because you have to cut it off at some point. And now we have COVID and we have the, I'm sure, recession that that comes that's going to come from that. Unemployment is is has been huge since 2020. What would your data suggest would the impact be on public higher institutions and philanthropic funding? I mean, it's definitely something... <laughs> I actually ended up having to rewrite my chapter five because of this, because of COVID. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's it's huge because, you know, what you're seeing happening in the higher education landscape as COVID started was very similar to what you were seeing when the Great Recession started, right? We're already seeing a huge decline in state appropriations for, for institutions at the beginning. With the addition, you know, during the recession, at least these institutions were open, they had students, students were coming, you know, they were making money off their auxiliary services like dining and housing, you know, and all of those things. But with COVID, all of that was gone too, right? So they're purely working on tuition and, you know, the money that they bring in. So definitely some similarities in that, that reduction definitely happens. I think it's, you know, it's important to look at it took during after the Great Recession, it took four to five years for state appropriations to start creeping back up, but never quite at that level it was before. Whereas private funding started going up two years after the Great Recession. So I think that's important for institutions to keep in mind in that, you know, while it might take a little bit longer for, you know, the state appropriations to start going up that it looks like donors are more likely to start giving about two years after. And that two-year data is backed by some previous research. There's uh, a professor that did a study on the 2001 recession, and he also found, you know, similarly that, you know, after a few years, it goes back up. The same thing again is that while state appropriations, you know, decrease by double digits for these institutions, philanthropic funding really only decreased by like 3% during the rate recession. And again, in that study for the 2001 recession, it, it decreased by like 2.3%. So, you know, around that 2 to 3%. So, you know, during recessions like this, philanthropic funding is kind of the more reliable source of funding if you can, you know, work towards that. So, so that was something that was interesting. You know, again, when you're looking at how all of the donor types have that U-shaped growth, meaning that they do reduce their funding during recessions, keeping in mind that, you know, foundations were linear pretty much throughout. So, you know, making sure that, you know, you're doing what you can to get foundation money, although that is a whole, that could be a whole nother topic about how foundation money is being divvied up and, you know, the difficulty of getting that. So I think that, you know, I think it would be really interesting to do a similar study as what I did, looking at, you know, what happened or what's going to be happening in these next few years after after COVID, or even, you know, just doing a comparison of kind of how the numbers are working out after the Great Recession versus after COVID, hopefully, although we're still not quite there at after COVID yet. But um, I do think this is going to be the next line of inquiry into kind of this topic is, is how, you know, how did COVID impact it? What's the similarities? And what are the differences? Because, I mean, if we're completely being honest, you know, the Great Recession was really a purely an economic 
right? Event. Whereas, you know, COVID we're talking, you know, this is a health event, right? This is an economic event, but it's also a health event. It's, it's a public event. So, you know, there's going to definitely going to be differences, but as far as, you know, the numbers that are looking that, that you would look at, we're starting to see some similar trends that we saw at the beginning of the great so the recession happening these past two years. It's interesting to me and, and so exciting for you and your work that the numbers kind of align with previous studies, even though we're, we're talking about completely different years. So that's that's very exciting. And I think that that makes the predictability of this more likely, although I'm a qual person. So I would want to figure out why alumni aren't giving as much and why they're back years earlier before state appropriations are back. I'd want to dig into that. Let's talk about policy and implications of your study on higher education finance policy. You've alluded to this throughout our conversation. What does this all mean? I think the important part here is that Again, kind of going back just to that very first finding that philanthropic funding and state associate, uh, state appropriations are associated with each other, right? So you can't just look at one source of funding when making policy decisions on higher education finance. You know, a lot of legislatures or lobbyists, you know, are out there saying, oh, well, we only need to look at this or we only need to look at that without looking at the whole picture. So for me, really, you know, that's what this dissertation kind of sprouted from, right? Why I was interested in it is that there are various sources of funding out there and they all need to be looked at as a whole and not just as separate pieces of the pie. You know, I'm, I'm a little guilty of that myself because I absolutely think that tuition should be in here, but that just was not something that I could accomplish within my dissertation, right? There are limitations to what you can finish in a dissertation. So, but I do think it's important that you look at all these different sources of funding as a whole and not just as separate pieces, because if they are related to each other, then how you change one is going to have an effect on how you change others. So, you know, going back to that finding I had where from 2004 to 2010, as state appropriations increased for doctoral institutions, philanthropic funding also increased, right? So, you know, keeping that association in mind and understanding, especially for these smaller schools, these non-flagship schools, these non-doctoral schools that are already having trouble bringing in state appropriations, right? Because that's another trend that's happening is that, yes, state appropriations are going out, but the majority of it is going to your big schools, you know, your big state school, your flagship institution, and understanding how that might impact how these other institutions can then bring in other sources of funding. Again, that again, goes into the idea of the private versus public good, because if you're looking for a consolidation in the higher education space, because you think it's a private good, and it should only be for these very specific reasons, then you're going to look at this data and you're going to say, okay, well, in that case, let's just funnel more money into doctoral institutions, right? We just need one really good school in each state, right? But if you're looking at it as kind of how I look at a higher education, that it is a public good and that it's not just there to prepare students for a very specific job. I mean, there's certain majors, of course, where that is a thing, but, you know, I really believe in like a liberal arts education and really understanding and learning and growing as a person and understanding what you want to do, partly from my own experiences where 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a career and what I really wanted to do when I quote unquote grew up until I was working on my master's, right? You know, that's pretty far along. So, and and in order for that, I think there has to be a variety of institutions. We can't just have large institutions for everything. And part of that is, you know, maybe my experience of working with transfer students, right? They really struggle when they transfer to a four-year institution from these, they're going from very personalized small classes is at their community college to this very large school where they're in suddenly in a 400 person class and, and they kind of lose that. You know, or you look at HBCUs um, and HSIs and, and the fact that there is that need for these type of institutions for various populations. So I think that the diversity of the types of institutions we have in the United States is an asset to higher education. So I would use this data to show that, okay, well, if you want to make sure that there is, you know, that there continues to be this variety of institutions that cater to a variety of students then as you're deciding where the state appropriations goes, you need to then also kind of think about, well, how is this going to impact what other funding they can also receive? That's a very eloquent summary. Thank you. As you were running your your analysis, you went to school in Maryland. Yes. Um, did you have a look at just Maryland out of curiosity just to see, oh, how, what does this mean for my state? What, what did you learn? Um, absolutely. Um, so there were various institutions within Maryland that were included in my study. I actually was not as curious about that because there was a previous study where someone did a very similar study on just the state of Maryland. So having already read that, I kind of knew, okay, this is kind of where Maryland stands. So I didn't, you know, for my data, I didn't like go in and look at like Maryland specifically. I really, at that point where I was looking at individual institutions of my data, I was really only looking at institutions where the data was different or unique. And since Maryland did not pop up there, it was not something that I spent a lot of time on. But yeah, the the study that was done by Cox in 2011, where he looked at just Maryland data, similar not the exact, but a very similar questions that I had for my my dissertation. But most importantly, he used the same data set. You can kind of compare that way. And, you know, he he had similar findings that looks like, you know, these relationships are kind of related. And that when you increase state funding in one area, private funding similarly increases in that area. So yeah, so there was a whole study done just on Maryland. So if you're interested, you can read Cox's study from 2011. (laughs) Sounds good. And so, you know, obviously, just from what you've been saying, your study has a lot of practical implications for policymakers and, you know, those who lobby policymakers. What does it all mean for development professionals at these institutions? That is a very good question. That's kind of something that I've been wrestling with as I did my defense. One of my reviewers was like, you should make a fact sheet for a variety of people. I'm still working on that. (laughs) But absolutely. I mean, I think that from this data, what's going to be the most helpful for development professionals at institutions is, you know, when you look at the big picture of what do we think we're going to, you know, as you're setting your goals, right? What do we think we're going to bring in in like the next five years? Just being aware of how the economy might impact that. I'm sure this is already things, you know, I'm not a development professional myself. I'm sure these are things that they're already kind of looking at, but knowing that there is data out there, 
right? That they they can kind of use to guide or to back up their reasoning um, as they're creating these plans for the next few years. I think the most important thing though is, um, you know, looking at that, the data I had based on the donor type, right? And just kind of really looking and examining. Um, it's not something... Obviously, I spent a lot of time talking about today because it really gets into kind of like the the intricacies and like very fine data points, which when you're doing a big study like this, fine data points are great, but you can't really talk about all of them in your chapter five because you're like, well, you know, your chapter five has to really kind of focus on the big picture and like going back to you, you know, why you're studying this. But there is some really interesting, you know, little pieces of data there that I think development officers could take a look at. I do think on that end, though, that it is important that researchers like me who do studies like this, then distill their information to make it easy for development officers to understand. So like you said, you know, to explain, you know, explain my method, because it's not something that a lot of, you know, listeners are going to be familiar with. At the same time, I can't ask the development officer to look at, you know, my charts or my my findings and really kind of understand what that means for them. So I do think that, and this could be coming from a practitioner scholar angle, but I do think that as we do research, especially quantitative research, that it's really important that we take it from this, you know, very scholarly, let's publish it kind of format to something that is a lot easier for the policymakers who are going to be reading it, the stakeholders, whether it be legislatures or whether it be development officers to really understand what the results mean. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree with that. What does your study do to move the scholarly conversation forward? Like speaking of, you know, okay, so practitioners, that's one thing, but what does it do in terms of moving forward the the Cox study and and some of these other studies that have explored this area? I think that one it adds it really adds to the literature that focuses on these two types of of funding. So there's only been two studies that have been done that even compares kind of these results. The first is Cheslock and Gianneschi's, which is very similar to my study. And kind of what guided me on creating my study, because their study was ended in 2001, I think, maybe 2004, which is maybe how I came up with 2004. <laughs> they noted that throughout throughout the time that they were doing their study, it was purely the economy was going up the entire time. So one of their at the end was, you know, future research could look at when there's actually a dip in the economy, which is, you know, what I did. Um, And then again, Cox's study, which was focused on a single state. So I do think it's important in bringing the topic of philanthropy into the discussion on an academic level. So the majority of research done on philanthropy in higher education is dissertations, right? I read, I, I read a whole article about how on average, you know, there's so many dissertations written every year on philanthropy, but then a very small percentage of them ever get published, right? Adding to that research and just acknowledging that philanthropy is a bigger pie in higher education now, and it is something that needs to be studied, right? So I think that it adds to the academic side on that end of just one more thing out there. That was another reason I really wanted to do a quantitative study on this was that A lot of the research, in fact, the majority of the research that is published on 
philanthropy and higher education is qualitative. A lot of them are by scholar practitioners like myself who, you know, work in development. Um, and I you know, absolutely value qualitative studies. Those are absolutely needed. And even within, as I was doing my dissertation, I was like, oh, if we could take this one part and do a qual study on that, that would be really cool, right? So I absolutely value that. But I do think that in order to kind of also help legitimize this topic in the higher education academic space that we need a few more quantitative studies. Kind of similarly, I know this is going back, you asked specifically about academics, but kind of also going into that is that when you're trying to convince, you know, legislatures and policymakers, sometimes it's a lot easier to convince them with the data than it is necessarily with the qualitative studies, which is just as important. So that's one area. The other area I think that this really added to um, the literature is study on higher education finance during an economic recession, right? A lot of data out there already on that, but this adds an additional nuance of looking, well, then how does, you know, the philanthropic aspect of that then, how is that impacted by a recession? And then again, you know, going into donor behavior, right? Um, so since a variety of donors and their growth curve and their giving levels differ based on, you know, as well as the time, but as well as these characteristics that adds to some literature out there about donor behavior, which is, like I mentioned, probably the most helpful for development officers. So you finished your, your dissertation and, and graduated earlier this year. Any other research, any new research you're working on or thinking about taking up? Have you had I, enough of a break? <laughs> I have not gotten that far yet. So I have actually just submitted this to present at conferences. So my current plan is to, to present these at conferences, really get it tightened up and, and kind of worked out to get it to, to submit it for publication. Obviously, you're trying to narrow down a, a hundred and however many page paper this is into like a 15 page succinct <laughs> paper. So that is what I'm currently uh, working at. One of the things I thought would be really interesting to do with this data that I could do as, you know, as soon as I'm done kind of working on getting this published is to add in HBCUs as a variable because I have all the data already. So it would just be a matter of going in and identifying which of the institutions are HBCUs. It would take a little bit of time looking at my 383 institutions, but I, and then rerunning all the data. But I do think that that would be a really interesting data point that I had not thought of until I was already almost at the end of my dissertation. And at that point, it was kind of like, well, we have to graduate. So let's finish what we have. So that would be a data point I would really like to include and kind of compare how philanthropic funding and state appropriations are associated for HBCUs versus non-HBCUs. So that's one area I'm looking at. And then Obviously, with COVID and, you know, the, the trends being very similar at the beginning, this is something, you know, maybe five years down the line, but I would love to do a comparison of kind of the data that I have from, you know, around the Great Recession to the data around um, what's happening now with COVID. Those are good things to have to look forward to. Um, speaking of COVID, I was curious, uh, you wrote almost your entire dissertation during COVID. Share with others on this journey 
what it was like to navigate a pandemic on top of working full time and and writing a dissertation. Um, absolutely. I mean, I will pre- preface this by saying that you know I'm incredibly thankful and incredibly lucky that you know no one close to me was impacted by COVID very terribly, so I didn't have to have that additional burden as I was I was trying to complete this. So I'm very grateful for that. I mean, in some ways, I feel like COVID kind of helped versus did not help. Because of COVID, we were able to work from home, which in some ways really helped me because then I was able to, when I had 10 minutes here or there between, you know, what I was doing to just kind of work on my dissertation. Whereas when you're in the office, I have a student facing job, right? You just never know when a student's going to come in, you know, you're interacting. So in some ways, it did provide me with a little bit more extra time to really kind of think about it. And I think this is, you know, true for anyone that starts their dissertation phase of their journey. You really do kind of become it's you set your own time and your rules and your your plan and you have to stick with it because no one is going to really push you to do that, right? And that was especially true for COVID because I mean, of course I would reach out to my chair and my methodologist when I had questions, but I was extra cognizant of the fact that, you know, they might have other things going on, right? You know, this is a very difficult time. So I was very careful about only reaching out you know, when I had something that was really urgent or kind of compiling it all until I had enough where I was like, okay, this is worth like a 30 minute phone call, right? Whereas if we were in person, I would just probably, you know, pop into their office or something and just ask a real quick question and and get that clarification right away. So that was definitely a little bit different working in COVID and just being, you know, extra cautious about that. But again, you know, the the big thing I think really comes down to, you know, how you plan it out and and setting your goals and making sure that you're able to focus. I mean, there were definitely a couple weeks where I was just like, I cannot think about the dissertation right now. There's just too much going on, right? Over the summer when the BLM protests were happening, you know, it's just, you know, you took some time off. You just, there are other things happening in the world, right? So giving yourself that leeway to be like, okay, let's, you know, get this all done. I mean, it did delay when I wanted to graduate. So I had hoped to be done writing and defending by August. And I actually ended up not defending until November. So, and, and, you know, part of that was taking some extra breaks, right? That I just really needed for my mental health. And part of that was the extra month of learning a new methodology. But again, you know, just, just setting, setting those goals for yourself because no one is, no one else is going to set them for you, but then allowing yourself to kind of fall behind sometimes if, if it's needed, I think. So it's a very fine juggling act between being your own taskmaster and being compassionate to yourself. Giving yourself that grace. Now that that actually resonates with me in, in my process, which brings me to our final question for today. And we ask everyone this that comes on the podcast. What is the piece of advice you have for others that are considering this journey or are currently in the midst of it, particularly thinking about not wanting to write anymore, not wanting to go to class anymore, or just some of the what ifs that come along? What piece of advice would you give to other doctoral students? So I have a few things that kind of pop into my brain. So the first is, I guess this would be for before you even apply, like if you're interested in being a doctoral student, I would say, really know why you want to do it, right? Um, Really understand and be honest with yourself as to why you're getting the degree and what you hope to get out of it. 
right? So I was very honest with myself that I was not expecting this degree to make me be a tenured professor somewhere, right? This is not my goal. So really understanding that because it is tough. It is a tough four, five, six years, however long it takes you to do your dissertation. And if you're not honest about why you started it, I think that you will definitely give up at some point. So, you know, just being really honest with yourself and really understanding why you're doing this. I think that the other point first for students who are just starting their doctoral degree is, you know, really narrowing down kind of what your topic is going to be from the very first day, I think was so helpful. Every paper I wrote for every class was related to my topic in some way. Now, by the time I wrote my dissertation, a lot of that was just not, I wasn't able to use it at all. But the fact that I had focused on this one topic, my first two years, I was, I was doing my classes and, you know, writing papers really helped when one, I took comps, it really helped with comps, Um, but two, it really helped me kind of organize, okay, well, this is kind of how my topic is changing and kind of how it's working. Because I feel like if you wait to do that, if you wait to do readings on your topic, if you wait to kind of start writing it about it already, then you might not know where you're really passionate about writing. Because sometimes I'd be like, as I'm reading, I'm like, this is a great topic. But then as I try to write about it, I'm like, two sentences. I'm like, I can't, I can't figure out more. So really understanding that was very helpful. And then I think that for when you start your dissertation, it's really important that you find a support group of other doctoral students who are at a similar stage you are. They always really pushed writing groups on us at GW. I unfortunately did not join any writing groups because writing for me is very much a personal thing. So I just can't do it with other people. They also suggest that you write 15 minutes a day, which everyone I know suggests, but I am a bulk writer. (laughs) Like I need to sit down for like two hours and write. So, but I having a support group was incredibly helpful. So I was really lucky in that the program I was in was a cohort-based system. So there were eight of us in a cohort. We were incredibly close. We still are incredibly close. We're a very close cohort. And even though we didn't write with each other, the fact that we were able to just text each other occasionally or talk and just be like, hey, how's it going? You know, I heard you were stuck on this part. How did you resolve that? And just having those conversations and knowing that these people that are your friends and are going through the same thing you are, are there to support you was, was very helpful. So I think that if you don't have that kind of program, because I know a lot of programs at the doctoral level aren't necessarily cohort based, finding that group, whether it be a writing group or whether it be just a small group of other people also on that journey. I don't even think it needs to be people studying the same topic you are, or even in the same fields. Like it doesn't have to be other students studying in the same field you are just being at that same stage of the process, I think is really important. Those are good bits of advice. Well, thank you, Nancy, for joining me today on this episode of Beyond the Defense. It was uh, really great to to hear your perspectives and, and learn a little bit more about your journey. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk about it. Thank you again to our listeners. Remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of Beyond the Defense podcast, where new episodes are released on Fridays. Be sure to follow us at Beyond the Defense on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information about sharing your research. See you next week. Mm